We, um, um, our Lord uh, will tell Peter here in the Gospel of John in chapter 21, next week we'll be there. He tells Peter, feed my sheep. And it seems that we here at Brush Prairie with all the lunches, we take that very seriously. We take the Bible quite literally. So whatever else we do, there will be lunch. I was talking to the kids about, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like sometimes it's hard to believe? Not that you're ready to jettison your faith completely, but you're not sure that your faith is really going to make any difference in this situation. You don't maybe even really expect God to show up, and maybe that's because you've prayed about this or that, or you've prayed for, and you haven't seen it yet. Maybe you've learned through experiences of life that what you've been promised doesn't always get delivered. It doesn't always turn out that way. And so it's easy to take from the experiences of life and, and you then filter your expectations of what God will do through those experiences of life that you've already had. Maybe you feel like, well, we're a long way off from how God showed himself here. And if, if we were in the first century, if we were there with Jesus and his disciples, if we walked the Emmaus Road, if we saw the empty tomb, if we were there in the upper room, then, then it, it would be much easier to believe. Our faith would be more settled and more sure. But in the midst of the stuff that goes on in life, sometimes... It's hard to believe. In the midst of things that go on in our culture. And, and we can feel so far removed from those events and just reading about them here. We can feel almost like, well, with John and Peter and Mary Magdalene and even Thomas, this is where it was really happened. This is where the gospel went out and, and Paul and Timothy and they turned the world upside down. It's not the same for us in comparison. We're, we're almost second-string saints. You know what I mean by that? We're used to kind of ranking and stacking ourselves, right? It starts in the playground. They're choosing up for teams. Remember that? They still do that, or is that not allowed anymore, any longer? But they choose for teams, and I was normally not one of the first chosen on those teams. Uh, it's still, the NFL draft works the same way, right? First round, second round, seventh round. You know, and some of those kids are left on the playground, right? We're used to it working and ranking and stacking, and my faith might not measure up to others. And we could think that, well, sometimes it's hard for me to believe, and yet I, I, I haven't had the same experiences, the same opportunities. John 20, a little different than the chapter we focused on last week, which I said was a very unpleasant chapter. John 20 is a wonderful chapter, and we like to read this chapter. Because this chapter can encourage us about ourselves, maybe even about our faith. Because we read this chapter about these hopeless disciples, disciples without hope, who find it hard to believe what they ought to believe. 
They really should believe these things because Jesus told them it was going to be this way. Jesus said this would happen, and he said he would rise from the dead. And so they go to the tomb early in the morning expecting that the body will still be there and are surprised it is not. And we read the chapter, and we're, we're kind of smiling to ourselves, right? Because they don't get it yet, and we do. Let's, let's look into, and, and we'll, we'll read the first part of John chapter 20. You'll, you'll find us, if you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us on, I think, page 906. And we're going to read the first part, I think, verses 1 to 18. Uh, this, this, this is the story, it kind of surrounds Peter, John, and Mary. I know it sounds like a 60s folk song group, but it's not. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And Stooped to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, and she, Mary, wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Wow, that changed everything, right? That encounter, that personal encounter with the risen Lord himself, wow, that that would change it for you, that would change it for me, right? If only... If only we could see it like that, our faith would be different. You know, it's interesting as Mary comes to that tomb. Did did you follow the flow of what happens? She comes to the tomb, and it's still dark. Why is she there so early? She is ready at first light when there's a light enough to see. She is ready to come and to finish the washing and anointing, the, the caring of the body for burial that ought to be done, that was interrupted, that was kept from happening yet because of the Sabbath. 
They couldn't do that on the Sabbath. And so now, the, the, the day following, now's the opportunity. And she is right there, ready to go, even while it's still dark. But as she comes to the tomb, while it's dark, she sees the tomb is opened. And at that point, what does she do? Oh, what would you do? You're in a cemetery. And a tomb is open. And so what are you going to do? You're going to go in there and check it out, right? No, you're not. You're going to do what she did. You're going to run like a scared girl, okay? And she runs. And what does she say? She tells Peter and John. She runs to Peter and John. She tells them what happened. That they have, what does she say? What's her report? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Did you catch what happened there? They, first of all, hardest, the biggest liars in the world and the hardest people to get a reference from, okay, is they. Okay, the, the, uh, the uh, unknown, the unnamed source, okay, never believe them because they lie. It's not true. She has they inside her head, and they are telling her this is what it is when that is not at all what it is. She didn't even look in the tomb. She doesn't even know that the body is there. What she knows is she has come ready for the service that is on her heart to do this last, this last act of love for good Jesus who is now gone. And she sees the tomb open, and she knows. She, she jumps to the worst. Aren't you glad you don't ever do that? Aren't you glad that when you see some indication of something, you don't just jump to the worst assumption and run with it? That's what you see happening here. She, she, she jumps to that worst assumption, and Peter, and, Peter and, and, and John, apparently it's John. John is not describing his own identity. I think I've suggested before that one of the reasons it'd be important for John not to name himself in this as this gospel is first going out in Asia Minor where the church is already under persecution, and he, as the leader of that church in Asia Minor, is going to be exiled by the governor to Patmos. And uh, there's no need to draw that attention to himself earlier than necessary. So John seems to be the other. But we also learned that John is, at least in those days, was faster than Peter, and he wanted us to know that. Okay, John could run. But they run to the tomb first, and Peter, of course, his character, he, he dives right in. you got to love Peter. Peter, he, he ain't afraid of no ghost. Peter's right into the tomb, and in he goes, and, and he looks around, and he sees, and then John comes in behind him and looks, and it says, believe. And we wonder, what did they believe at this point? Because it says, for they did not as yet understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So we wonder, well, could they really believe yet? Well, up till this point, they didn't get it. None of them did. But now, the tomb's empty, and they're not necessarily jumping to the conclusion of Mary because they're remembering Jesus' words. And maybe now the light is starting to come on for them, even though it is still dark in the tomb. They go back. They don't tell anybody yet, which is odd. Because when John uses that term, believed, we've got to assume that John's still using it the same way that he's used it throughout the gospel. How much faith does it take to be saved, by the way? How much do I need to believe in Jesus? How firmly rooted and strong and unshakable does that faith have to be? I don't think that's the point. 
God, I believe you concerning your son Jesus who died for me and rose again. There it is. I don't understand it, but I believe in God. And that is new life. So they, they go back to their homes for now, not knowing what's going to happen next. But Mary stays there at the tomb, and she's still focused. She's still looking for the body. Somebody has taken the body. And she looks in at the tomb, and she sees something that nobody else gets to see. Isn't it wonderful that here is Mary, and she has come, and she has run with her own assumptions, and her faith is not at all in Jesus' promise of resurrection. And we read the story, and we smile because we know how she's going to get surprised here. I mean, look what God does for her. Talk about second string saints. You might suppose that in the first century, the women would be the second string saints, but look what God does for Mary here. She looks in the tomb, and what does she see? She sees the holy of holies of the temple itself. She sees the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and an angel on either side of it, there on that slab where Jesus' body had laid, and some of his blood perhaps still was sprinkled there. And just like in the mercy seat in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, there on either side of that slab, there's an angel here and an angel here. And they say, woman, why are you weeping? Implication, this is not the time for tears. This is the time for joy. At that point, she, she explains again, because they've taken away, my Lord. They've taken away the body, and I don't know where they've put it. At that point, maybe she hears behind her or something. She turns around and she sees whom she assumes to be the gardener. And Jesus himself says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Oh, there's the key. What have you been seeking? What have you been assuming? Sometimes it's hard to believe because of our own assumptions. Sometimes it's hard to believe because of our own preconceptions. Sometimes it's hard to believe because of where we are starting from and running with. Even when it's hard to believe, own your assumptions. Realize where you're coming from. Realize the seeds of doubt that are in your own heart. Realize what you're looking for. Realizes, realize our bias toward unbelief. Realize that. Be aware of that. Own your assumptions or your assumptions will own you. Mary goes there expecting the worst and she finds it. At least she thinks she does. Mary goes there expecting the worst, and yet God surprises her with his best. Who are you looking for? That's a great question when you're running to the tomb early in the morning. Who are you looking for? Can I ask it this way? Which Jesus are you looking for? Are you looking for the good and gone Jesus? You know, the Jesus who was a good man, a good teacher, and yet they killed him. And he's gone. And it's terrible. But at least we can honor him in his death. Mary comes to the tomb that morning looking for the good but gone Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you could be going looking for the raised with us as things were Jesus. They killed him, but they could not. He raised from the dead, and he's going to continue with us, and it's going to be just like the old days back in Galilee. Jesus is going to buy us lunch. Jesus is going to explain the Old Testament, and we're going to understand it, and it's going to be great, and he's going to poke at the Pharisees, and things are going to be just as or even better than they were before. And life here in the midst of Galilee will be better than it was before. Because we get to walk along with Jesus in the midst of it. Raised with us 
as things were, Jesus. He says, Mary, you can't have me yet. Don't hold on to me yet. I have not yet ascended to my Father. The Jesus they should have been looking for was the Jesus who said, I am going to the Father. And when I have gone to the Father by way of the cross, in resurrection, ascended to the Father, I will send the Spirit. And because I send the Spirit, it's better for you because greater works than I've done will you do because I go to the Father. That's the Jesus they should have been looking for. The the raised and at God's right hand Jesus who sovereignly empowers his people for greater works than he himself had done. Instead of interpreting God's promise through the lens of our own experience, we need to understand and interpret our experience. What do I mean by own your own assumptions? We need to interpret and understand our experience through the lens of God's promise. Don't let experience determine what you'll believe, but let what you know and believe from God determine how you understand your experience. You see how that turns it around? Let God's truth be a light that shines on, illuminates, and thus makes sense out of what is happening rather than letting the experience determine what you think or believe about God. Mary comes to the tomb with a set of experience, and we all do. We all do. You're going you're gonna to watch a football game this afternoon. Some of you will. We, and, we, and we hope it's a good one. We never know. But there might be some close calls in that game. But you already, already know, the, the, the close calls, the calls that are uncertain when they're against your team, oh, come on, how could he call that, right? When the close calls are against the other team, or they weren't called, but it could have been, oh, come on, how could they not call that? And yet you'd never want them to call it that close against your team, whoever your team would be, unless it's the Patriots, and everybody wants everything to be called against them. But we have our bias, Right? We have our preconception about how we, how we expect things should be because of where we're coming from. And so it is with our faith. And our experience has taught us some things about how we understand what God is probably going to be and do. And sometimes the Word of God itself, oftentimes the Word of God itself, contradicts that, interrupts that, intrudes into our own assumptions. And there is where we're going to decide, am I going to run with what I think or what God says? Own your assumptions or they will own you. That's the experience of Mary here by the tomb. Mary comes expecting that Jesus is still dead because that's the way it always works. That's the way her stories have always ended. And yet Jesus is alive. And look what he's done in his life. He has opened up to them and invites her and, the, and Peter and John and the others to embrace a whole new reality, a whole new place and position for themselves. What does he say? He says, go to my disciples. Go to my followers. He says, go to my brothers. And say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He has pulled them up into the same place as himself. They are now in him. 
They have a new identity that's linked to the Son of God himself, that he came to his own, the first chapter told us, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe on his name. And these who have believed, he says, my God and your God, my Father, your Father, you are my brothers, you are my friends. There's a new place that he's given them. And in that new place, he also, he comes to them in that upper room, and we read about it. And there they are. And by this time, there's excitement in that upper room. He is not flat out, stone cold, surprising them all that he's alive when they thought he was still dead when he appears in the upper room. By this time, the two from Emmaus have come back already, as we read in Luke's gospel. And, and when they get there, the others are telling them that the Lord is alive, and he's, he's shown himself to Peter, as well as to Mary. And there's an excitement, there's an expectation, yet they don't yet know what it means fully. And Jesus comes into the room in their midst, and he lays on them a little bit more about what it means. It's nice that you believe Jesus is risen. Do you believe that this morning? That Jesus is risen. It's good that you believe that, but what will you do we do with what we believe? What difference does that make? How has that intruded on and changed the, who we are and what we're about? That's what he does here. He does something very strange here, by the way. He comes to them, and first of all, it's got to be the greatest Jewish green of all time, Shalom. Steps into the room, the risen Messiah. And what are his words? Shalom. Shalom Alechem, peace to you. Huh, that's a whole new dimension to Shalom. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad, and he says, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. Wait a minute, wait, what? What? Jesus does his thing and we do ours, right? Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I sent you. Greater works will you do because I go. He's not coming back in the way he came before. It is not Jesus' plan to be incarnate in every generation. It is Jesus' plan to continue the incarnation in every generation. But he is not coming incarnate in every generation himself as he did in this first one. He is in the world in us. He said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he does something else with that. Something that's kind of weird. Don't try this in your small group. He breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is, first of all, strange in comparison to the other Gospels, because, wait a minute, the Pentecost doesn't come, the church doesn't start, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells and everything. One of our guys uh, on a Monday morning study said, now wait a minute here, we got Pentecost uh, many days after this still. What is John doing? And John is not doing a tight chronology here. John is long after Pentecost happened, he's putting all of these things together, reminding of the church that what is true is that Jesus' death for our sins and his re resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the Father's right hand and his sending and empowering by the Holy Spirit, his church, all of that is a package deal. And so that's what he's reminding, and, and quite likely Jesus is reminding his disciples on this first Sunday night of that which would become fully true at Pentecost when the Spirit falls on all of them that the disciples later refer to as the beginning, when it all started. 
He's, he breathes on them and they say, receive, and, and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that that actually happened before. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, God made humanity from the dust of the earth. He made them. And then he breathed on humanity and man became a living being. He breathed into him the breath of life. It happens one more time. Well, it's talked about happening. In the, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, when Israel is dried up and gone and, and already has been partly carried away into captivity in Babylon and there's no hope for any future and, and the prophet is given this vision of a valley full of dried, sun-bleached, dead bones and God asks the prophet, can these bones live? And the prophet wisely answers, God, you know, does it assume and then in the midst of, of that vision, God, the Spirit of God, breathes upon the bones, and they come alive, and they live. And that's not unlike Genesis 2, for Israel and Israel's future, future, and it's not unlike what God is doing here. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that life in Christ is restored into right relationship and fellowship with the Father, even as the Son already has been and has always been in right relationship with the Father in in the Trinity, and we're united with him and joined into that relationship so that we are rightly related to the Father. We have life. We have that full fellowship together by the Holy Spirit in us, and we live out his life in humanity even as Jesus did. All of that in this breathing upon them, the Holy Spirit, so that they can do something else. And we don't like this part. Dare I say it, it sounds kind of Catholic. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He seems to put on them the authority to forgive or not forgive. If we read it that way. And we recoil at such a notion that, well, wait a minute, forgiveness is not up to any human between us and God. We don't go to any other man to get that forgiveness. We receive God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Amen. And yet, that message of God's forgiveness that is in Jesus has been placed in two. Hold, hold out your hands for a minute. Hold out your hands. Go ahead. Hold out your hands. Look at those hands. God has placed his message of forgiveness of Jesus into these hands. He's given it to you. He has, he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He has committed unto us this ministry of reconciliation, of urging others be reconciled to God by forgiveness in Jesus. And so, so Paul says, we plead with men, be reconciled to God, because that's what God's given us to do. We're the ones to carry it. If we don't tell them, who will? Huh, maybe he will send Jesus again and he'll you know, do another preaching round. No, he has no plan B. 
His plan, his purpose, his intention is the continuing incarnation of Jesus in the body of Christ, his church, continuing to carry out this wonderful, privileged ministry and message of forgiveness of everything in Jesus only. He's given it to us. In fact, second class saints, maybe second string saints, third, fourth, 56 string saints, maybe us. What was the glorious, the glorious commission that Jesus gave his disciples to take the gospel? How far? Was it to uh, Samaria? Was it to Galilee? Was it as far as India? No. How far was it? To the ends of the earth, which is somewhere around from Jerusalem. That would be around uh, Seaside, I think. <laughs> now, 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 Thomas never got to Seaside. Peter and John never got to the Oregon coast. Most of the disciples didn't make it out of the bounds of the Roman Empire. Second string saints? No, God has given the fulfillment and the conclusion and the continuing of this greatest of commission. He's given it to us. And there are people in Vancouver, Brush Prairie, or Hawkinson, or Battleground, or whatever it is you came from this morning. He has put somebody there that bumps into you because you have got something that they urgently and desperately need. You don't have all the answers, but you know this. You know where God's forgiveness can be found. And it's in Jesus, the risen Jesus. God has given us a whole new place alive with Jesus. And we, we own our assumptions which affect our unbelief. And we rather embrace this new place that God has given us in Jesus as alive with Jesus. Recipients of his spirit bearing his forgiveness to others. And believing even though we haven't seen. Oh, let's finish the story. Let's get to Thomas. We got time for Thomas, don't we? We got time to include Thomas in this. Turn back to, to John 20, verse 19 now. In the evening of that first day, oh, I, I should have read that part. Well, we've talked about that part. Jesus comes into the room, shalom. Everybody's all excited. Verse 24 Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, he was not there when Jesus came that night. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Jesus was there with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same as before. It's a rerun. You saw this earlier in the season. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, you on, and put your hand and place it into my side. Just what Thomas had said. And do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to them, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So here's Thomas. What do we know about Thomas? Thomas says this. Thomas, Thomas knows that sometimes it's hard to believe. And what he's been through, he's not just jumping in for free. Sometimes it's hard to believe. And yet, like Mary, Jesus knows what you need to believe. What do you need to believe? 
Do you need to see Jesus? Do you need to take your finger? You didn't, ex- you didn't see the crucifixion that Thomas saw. Maybe that's part of what's going on here in Thomas's head. What do we need to believe? What does someone around you need to believe? Do they need to have some sign, some power encounter, some wonder that would make them believe? Remember the man who said to Jesus, surely if someone comes back from the dead, they'll believe. Jesus said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to what the scriptures already say, they're not going to believe even if Jesus came, even if someone were to come back from the dead. Gave away my point there. It's ironic that Jesus is saying that because he himself will come back from the dead. And yet, people don't believe. Thomas says it's hard to believe. Jesus knows exactly what Thomas needs to believe. We see that in that following through exactly what Thomas had said. What is it that we need to believe? Two more verses. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, and we don't even need to know them all. They're not written down in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God calls us to believe. God invites us to believe. God urges us to believe. How will we believe? Jesus knows exactly what you need to believe, and it's right here. In fact, maybe you hold it in your hands. Maybe it's paper, maybe it's electronic, but this word from God, this truth from God is what we need even in the midst of an age around us where it is hard to believe. God has given us what we need to believe. We'd say, well, I wasn't there. I'm way after here. Who am I as compared to them? You know, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Judaism, they considered, some of the rabbis considered converts. Converts from the nations who became Jewish, they considered those non-Jewish converts as more precious to God than even one born into Israel. They considered them more precious to God than the first generation that came out in the Exodus and stood at Mount Sinai. Why? Because they saw the, they saw the mountain shake. They heard the t- trumpet blow. But he said, these who have heard none of that, and yet they submit themselves to God's word. What could God consider more precious than that? Jesus says, blessed are you who have not seen, who were not there, and yet you believe. That's the very working. There's no reason for you to believe except for the very working of God, Him meeting you there in your spirit by His spirit. Maybe. Well, how, how, does, how does Thomas declare his faith here? How does Thomas declare what he believes? It's a wonderful statement. It's a great theological statement, and the Gospel of John is a very theological gospel. And he says, my Lord and my God. Such a clear statement about the deity of Jesus, and theologians appreciate that. Thank you very much, Thomas. That's not why it's there. You know why it's there? John is writing to his disciples. Well, okay, it's, it's there too because we need to know that Jesus is, the, is, is God in human form. You're going to write me off as a heretic if I don't clarify myself there. But it's even better than that. John is writing 85 AD or so 
to, uh, to, first of all, to his church in the surrounds of Asia Minor in the midst of a time when the emperor has gone a little crazy and he loves for people to call him Lord and God. Specifically that title. That's what he likes. In fact, in Asia Minor, headquartered in Ephesus, there where John is and those he is writing to, there's a huge, it's the biggest temple on the block, and it's to the emperor Domitian who loves to be considered Lord and God. And some of the different governors in the various regions are stirring persecutions of the Christians who are resisting this because they're pressing the point because like good politicians, they want to outdo one another in honoring the emperor and showing how faithful and loyal they are to him. And so persecutions of Christians is coming up in this region and that, and especially in Asia Minor. Paul and, 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 and John is going to be exiled because of it. And in the midst of that, he reminds those, by recording Thomas's confession right here at this point, even when sometimes it's hard to believe, and in A.D. 85 in Ephesus, it was hard to believe. The age was against them. And yet, John reminds them, Jesus is our Lord in, uh, and our God. He is the one in whom we believe. And in doing so, by quoting Thomas's confession, he contradicts the wisdom of the age. And brother and sister in Jesus, that's where you live. What we believe in Jesus and in his forgiveness and in the standing he has given us is contradictory to the age in which we live. We live in an age of incredulity, an age of unbelief. We live in an age of skepticism. It's an age that seems in a rush to prove that almost nothing that's put out publicly can really be believed, whether it's in marketing, whether it's in politics, whether it's one pseudo-crisis after another. What you are told with great urgency can't really be believed. That's the age in which we live. It's an age in which it's hard to believe anything. And yet we dare to believe in the midst of this mess, in the midst of this jaded and skeptical age, you might find it hard to believe anything that, like Thomas, you can't validate for yourself. John points us back to the story of God's truth that comes right into this current mess. It's a story of God who came into our mess for us and died for us, whose truth has been validated by the, by the martyrs, by those who have been willing to die for this truth in every generation, and yet not merely by that. The truth of God's story has been validated by the truth that it tells us about ourselves and by the truth that it tells us about what God must be rather than what we would imagine him to be. This is God's book. And so is this part of it, this gospel of John, given to us, essentials of the gospel, so that we can take that, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Not merely life insurance for eternity when you die, but life that we were made to live in relationship with God in the midst of the broken here and now. Believing, experiencing his life, entering into that life as we would be by his spirit, the messengers of, the majoring in forgiveness. What if 
the next mistreatment that could make it hard to believe? What if that next mistreatment in which you are mistreated is actually your opportunity to extend forgiveness when it's not deserved? And there, your life lives in the gospel. I don't know where you all are today. I don't know at what point you're struggling, where you believe. Lord, help me in my unbelief. But I know this. God has given us what we need in order that we can believe. And it's right here in in front of us in his word. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have helped our unbelief. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your own word. You've given us your testimony. You've shown us who you are in Jesus, your son. In fact, you gave us yourself in order to give us his life. Oh, Father, would you help us even today, Lord, to live that life to the people around us? Lord, would you help us to extend an invitation, an invitation that we're about to sing, an invitation that's ours to receive that no one need be left in sin or in shame. That Jesus loved us, died for us, to give us new life. And that we can tell others around us. Father, would you be honored by, would you receive the, the, the prayer request of others that we would pray for who need to know your forgiveness in Jesus? Father, would you give us the opportunity, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, Lord, that person near to us, that we would extend the truth of your forgiveness to. Father, would you use that which we would give in in our offerings this morning, would you use this to advance all the way to the ends of the earth and right around us the truth that Jesus is risen and that forgiveness is in his name as you've called us to tell. Lord, give us your grace to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.